So this morning we are in the fifth and the final chapter of Lamentations. And if you guys are at all like me, this has been a really long series. It's been it's been hard to sit in this heavy heavy book for so long and it's funny I forget this every year and then rethink this every year, but Lent feels long. And I know that my temptation with Lent with this season, especially once we start getting sort of towards the end of it, is I start to think about Lent almost in like Easter terms, um, or not in Easter terms, in Advent terms, where like Lent just becomes the expectation of Easter, um, this waiting where we're just trying to get through to get to this goal of somewhere else. And then we can kind of like put it away and wipe our hands of it, close the chapter. Um, it's, it's almost as if um, Lent, I think of like one of those mud races, one of those um, fi- like mud 5Ks where everyone is crawling through these pits of mud. And then I know that at the finish line, there's going to be a clean shirt and a pile of Easter eggs full of candy, which sounds awesome. And I think that this story that I like to tell myself about Lent sort of mirrors the way that we think and talk in our culture about these processes of grief and mourning, which are related to the practice we've been thinking about sort of this whole time, the practice of lament. Um, I know for me, the most common story that I've sort of heard about grief um, is that grief has these five stages these five steps that you sort of move through until you're on the other side. You guys can probably all name them. And I think the reason it's a common story is because it feels like a comfort to us. Um, When we experience some sort of rupture, when we have a break in the world as we know it, I think it helps us to be able to think about grief as this really like like trustworthy process that we can sort of monitor and even like check off um, each of those stages until we emerge on the other side as just fine, as acceptance. But as I've been just reading and sitting with this chapter of Lamentations this week, I just have this sort of hiccup where I can't quite read Jeremiah's words as a movement through lament to some other side, to some sort of like final stage of acceptance. And I love one of the things that Meg testified to last week um, as she was speaking was that mourning lots of times doesn't feel tidy in this way. And in my experience, this is true that like loss and brokenness don't always act like the flow chart that we would want them to. We can't always systemize and count on and in that try and really like get our hands around and control or just sort of be able to like power through these stages. I think because mourning is particular. So when we lament, we're lamenting something really particular. 
And that sort of particularity, I think, actually pushes against our ability to systemize grief. It makes it not always this like linear progression. So in learning a little bit more about those five stages of grief, I've been learning that more recently, the study of grief and grief counseling has moved away from sort of this five-step model and now is moving back to reflect a little bit more of what I feel like our lived experience has been as we've been journeying through these chapters of Lamentations. I feel like we've been intuiting sort of week by week that grief is just at its core messy and it's confusing and it feels sometimes less like progress through than sort of like a slow shaking up and rearranging of our insides. And strangely, I love that as a church, completely accidentally, we shook up the order in which we would talk about these chapters. So if you think back to the beginning of the series, we did chapter one and then chapter two and then chapter four and then chapter three and now chapter five. And I found even this sort of mix up to be reflective of what lament feels like. It's this sort of jumping, lurching, circling expression of sorrow. And now we've, we've landed at the end, some sort of end. But Lamentations 5 is just not an easy chapter. And especially hearing it right after the sort of core, the heart of Lamentations 3 that we talked about last week with its one sort of great glimmer of hope. Great is thy faithfulness. Reading into this chapter feels a little bit like like reopening a wound or like repulling a muscle where it certainly doesn't feel like a proper finishing or a proper acceptance of the prophet's grief over this city. And if anything, it almost feels like there's sort of like a heightening to the pitch of this lament. There's more tension. The verses are shorter in this section, and this acrostic form that we've been able to trace all the way through is sort of broken open. It's kind of barely hanging on. And to me, it feels like this writer is sort of throwing everything he's got into this last battle cry of pain. And the, the hardest part for me about this chapter is the last few verses because they don't really feel final to me. Um, they, don't, they don't give us a release. They don't give us a way out. They say, why do you forget us continually? Why do you abandon us for such a long time? Give us new days like those long ago unless you have completely rejected us or become too angry with us. The best way I know how to describe the feeling that I'm left with at the end of Lamentations is this feeling as if I was listening to a song and just before the final note, um, I kind of know where it's heading. Like I know where that final note needs to land for the song to feel complete, to feel 
resolved. I think there's an actual word for this. Joey, is it the tonic? Is that what that is? Might be. Joey would know. Um, but there's sort of this way that we're able to intuit what the end of the song should feel like. And the end of Lamentations to me feels like if someone were to reach over and just flip off the music right before that last chord, that last sort of resolve, and everything inside of me would feel just like mad, sort of unfinished, left hanging, because I knew exactly what needed to be there, and it was cut short, and now I'm left with this sort of dissonance, this unresolved, gaping, open song. And I think part of what feels like irksome about this ending is that I'm not used to the language of lament that we've been sort of practicing over these last few weeks. I think what I'm really used to is narratives that resolve. I'm used to the sort of endings where I can just like close the book, put it back on the shelf, turn off the TV, walk away, not ever have to think about that story again or really like sit in it. And I, I think something like that is kind of what we crave here. Some final word of hope, some turn around for the underdog where the prophet like gets up off the mat and just fist pumps the air one time, or even honestly, just like a tiny hint of redemption. Even if we just had a whisper of that chorus, great is thy faithfulness. I think even that would give us sort of a release from this tension. But it is hard to feel haunted by this sort of open question, this silence that's on the other side of the lament. But strangely, I think it is exactly in this tension that some sort of hope for redemption sort of creeps in the back door. I know that my impulse um, if someone were to flip off that song right before that final resolving note, my impulse would be to just go ahead and hum it myself. I think I so want a way out of tension, out of sitting in front of the Lord with an open question and waiting for a response that lots of times I'm willing to actually re-narrate the ending myself or to try and convince myself that all is well by just like gritting my teeth and saying all is well. But I think as we're learning this sort of language of lament and learning to sit even in the silence, in our own silence in front of God, in the silence of each other's lament, what we are bearing witness to is a hope that is beyond our own contriving and that is beyond our own making. I see, one way I see this sort of discomfort with sitting in silence is in my own speech patterns. Um, when someone asks me how I am, 
even when I'm not okay. I find myself unable to give any sort of story or account without tacking on this this ending, this phrase like, um, like I'll tell the story and then be like, but it's fine. Um, or sometimes I'll say, uh, here's the story, but here are the three things I'm learning right now. And it's because I so want to narrate an ending of hope that even if I can't quite see one yet, I try and convince myself, tell myself that I do. Okay. Brain timeout. What I am not saying here is that we cannot be joyful in affliction or learn things from what we're going through. In fact, no, not that. We are always, always already an Easter people. I think that a true and relentless faith in a real Easter God, in a real Christ risen up from death itself, means that we don't have to hum the end of the song ourselves. There are things in the world that are just broken and that we don't understand. And sometimes speaking that truth out loud feels really complex and feels really scary. And we don't always know our way through. But we're a people who confess a hope that is real and that is deep. And a hope that's a response to suffering that is neither a platitude nor an ability just to sort of grit your teeth and bear it. We're people who profess a hope that's based in an actual encounter with a savior who's able to bring life out of death. And this is why I think sometimes even this incredible tension that's found at the end of Lamentations is a better story for us than even like a Rocky Balboa comeback. Because this this open question, this un finished song that testifies to the fact that when we cry out to God, we're crying out to a God who is not made of wood or of stone and who is not a figment of our imaginations that we need to justify or even necessarily to understand. We're crying out to a God who is alive and a God who is bound in relationship with us. God is not afraid of the fullness of our confusion and our anger or even our sense of injustice. Chris said at the beginning of this series that lament is beating on God's chest and knowing that he's not going anywhere. The writer of Lamentations can't honestly see God yet, can't honestly hear God yet. But his faith is daring because he's not willing to accept less than who he knows God to be. And an encounter with that God is what he is crying out for. Water break. <laughs> um, I've told 
Oak Church, our family, before about a hard, a particularly hard season for me that was um, a depression in the middle of college. And I think part of what felt so scary about this sort of like crumbling of my mind was actually the the fact of my faith in God. So I don't know if this makes sense, but my faith during that season almost felt like a, another layer of the confusion because I didn't know how to reconcile on the one hand what I know to be true of God's character with, on the other hand, what I was seeing and experiencing. It felt like some sort of like mismatch, non-sequitur. I couldn't get, couldn't get it to line up. And this sort of confusion is, I think, what we're hearing in this how long, oh Lord, of lamentations. So for the Israelites, whose their whole identity is wrapped up in their, their covenant with God, in this relationship, in their heritage as a people who have been chosen out from among the nations. So then when it starts feeling like they are abandoned and when they're left with sort of this open question mark, this silence, their whole identity is also at stake. That's also kind of what's up in the air and being questioned. And this, strangely, honestly, is why I'm growing to love Lamentations. Even this scary, silent openness of an ending, I think, bears witness and invites us into these moments when we feel even the most alone. To read this ending as a part of the canon of scripture, as a voice that is set down for all time for Christians to attend to, to find themselves in, that's to feel like maybe there's room for even the questions that we put to God when we feel like we've been abandoned. There's space for that. Kathleen O'Connor talks about how she finds even this sort of dissonant ending to be an invitation to life. Because in its very unsettledness, she says it makes what she calls a house for sorrow. That's not made of sentimental wishes or escapism or premature closure. This is a testimony. This says you're not crazy when mourning a loss, when a rupture of your world doesn't feel like five progressive stages that you can sort of like check off and just move through. I think this ending is a model for one of the most trusting things that we get to do in the face of grief that makes us feel even unseen by God. We have permission. We are compelled to say, to claim, this is not right. This is not who we know our God to be. And when we use this language of lament to proclaim that pain is not what we were made for, we're testifying to a God who is love and who is for us and whose will is for a world that is healed. And I think that until we get a real answer back from God, this proclamation is going to sound wild. It's going to sound like a temper tantrum. And it's going to feel like a tension, like a dissonance, like 
a broken off song that is waiting for that last note to come in. I think that as we learn to sit in both the cry, to sit in the question of lament, and then even to sit in sort of this real silence that follows, we're learning to sit in solidarity with those who can't yet see God or hear God's voice. And we're learning to remember that we are always every moment dependent on God's answer, on God's loving response. This is, this is a saying from dust we are made. We need help. I think this is why we don't just move on to Easter in a way that's going to push aside Lent. Because we're always going to be called to participate with our neighbors in waiting in silence. Sometimes even in crying out and saying loudly, this doesn't make sense. And we're with you in that. And I think that the silence of God at the end of Lamentations does not mean that God is not present. The reality that lament can feel sometimes less like a checklist and more like a whirlwind or a scary silence does not mean that restoration is not waiting in the wings to enter. In fact, right in the midst of even this messy temper tantrum of chapter five, I think there's a way that we can see that restoration waiting to come in. So, In this series so far, we've done a lot of mapping of tenses and persons and who is speaking where and saying what. So to trace that really fast, brief history, we started out in the third person narrative, which means like just someone saying, surveying sort of the destruction that they've seen. But then in chapter two, we get this introduction of the I. There's a a personal speaker. And all of a sudden, this lament feels sort of connected in this personal way. And then at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, we start hearing this language of our, us, we. And it, it shifts to this sort of communal sense of lament, this communal outcry. And then finally, right at the beginning of chapter five, we hear another shift. There's an entrance of another character. There's a you. There's a second person. And the the you here is the Lord, is Yahweh. The Lord is being sort of called into the conversation and addressed directly. Lord, the prophet says, consider what has become of us. You, Lord. Take notice of our disgrace. And this shift, in some strange way, I think is the most hopeful moment yet. Because the speaker is no longer just sort of like diagnosing the problem um, or talking about it with this audience in in a closed system. Instead, this shifts the speech of Lamentations into prayer. 
It opens the system and becomes a reach towards a restored relationship. You, Lord, who will reign forever, your throne lasts from one generation to the next. But why do you forget us? Return us, Lord, to yourself. Please, let us return. This is a prayer that's not just for the restoration of a city or even for the bodies of those who are suffering, but first and foremost of this covenant, this relationship that these people have with God. This is a prayer straight into the silence. Have you abandoned us? And this prayer brings God into the conversation as a partner, as a listener. One poet describes this type of silent partner as the unspeaking center of our monologues. God is a a partner to us even in silence because God is always informing and shaping even our desperate longing for God's self. Um, A few weeks ago, Chris mentioned a writer, a poet, Christian Wyman, who has been living for years with an incurable um, blood cancer. And in one prayer, he says, So great is my hunger for you? Or is it evidence of your hunger for me that I seem to see you in the black flower mourners make beside a grave and in the bare abundance of a winter tree? I think Wyman senses this movement into dialogue that to pray even a fierce, dissonant prayer to God is to open oneself to what we already know about God's love. That it exists even at the center of God's silence because it is always shaping our cry for God. I think even our hunger for God is a testimony to who God is. This is what one writer calls the pray anyway principle. Pray anyway because the turning of our hearts to God reminds us of God's character. It reminds us not to try and narrate our own ending or to claim hope where it is not yet, but instead that we are in a relationship with a God who is hope. This season of Lent, it does, it reminds us of our own smallness, but it also reminds us that our voice carries to God. Lament is the opening of the question. It's a real house for sorrow. And this is the real tension that we live in when we ask, Lord, are you still with us? Are you here? This is, I think, what it feels like to live sort of in the Saturday before Easter Sunday when we don't know yet what's going to happen. And the open question at the end of this book makes a safe place for us to return and remember that there is nowhere that God is not, even in what feels like silence. So just this week, I got to go and see this exhibit at Duke Chapel. And it's a series of prints from this really incredible artist, um, George Rouault. And so you enter sort of on one side of the chapel, and then you have to journey through 
sort of this montage where print after print displays individuals who are bent over or turned away. The lines of their bodies sort of look heavy with grief. These prints look actually almost like they could be illustrations for a picture book of Lamentations, which is a children's book that no one should ever write. But then sort of amidst and through these profiles of pain, there start to emerge these images of Christ. And sometimes it's just like a face in the background, and sometimes there's a cross in the corner. And then finally you encounter an image of Christ on the cross. And I think this is more how I want to imagine the movement from Lent towards Easter. I don't think we ever just leave behind lament, but instead Christ enters with us into death so that death might be annihilated. God's voice after this silence to us is ultimately Christ. God with us, God healing, bending low, touching the untouchable, speaking life to dry bones. Christian Wyman says somewhere else that Christ is God crying out, I am here. And not only what in what exalts or completes you, but even here in what appalls, offends, and degrades you. Christ, I think, is, is this final chord, sort of this last note that we can't hum ourselves that we're waiting on. Christ is the one that becomes a sacrifice so that we can live and the name by which we can claim that all is being made whole. Christ is the name by which we cry out against injustice and against death. And I know that if it was up to me to narrate, um, to sort of hum my own ending to the gospel, I would have chosen an end that didn't have any sort of dissonance. I think I would have wanted Jesus to be a conquering king coming into Jerusalem and ready to just sweep away the Roman rule. I would have wanted a logic that I could see and get my hands around and definitely a logic that doesn't involve death. But I think what we get instead is Christ with us in the questions, in the tension, in the moments when it doesn't line up and when we can't see it. Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning in labor pains, waiting to be set free from bondage. And we also groan, we wait for a final answer to what does sometimes feel like silence. We're we're waiting for a silencing of the silence forever. And God is with us even as we cry out. Romans 8 continues saying, The Holy Spirit intercedes with us, for us, with sighs too deep for words, expressing for us the lament that we can't even speak. The Spirit becomes our friend, our silent partner in lament, one who teaches us how to pray even when we feel completely alone. 
So I want to end today with one of the final images from this um, series in the chapel. And it's an image titled, Arise, You Dead, which is awesome. Um, And it has completely captured my imagination this week. This is it. Because this, in my mind, is a depiction of what happens right after one of my very favorite moments in all of Scripture. So in Ezekiel 37, there's this really incredible story of the Valley of Dry Bones. And there's a real sort of uh, Lamentations feeling in this story where the prophet is shown this big pile of bones. There were very many bones, the text says, and they were very dry. This is a really bleak, hopeless landscape. Nothing that the prophet could look at and say like, well, looks pretty bad, but I think I see some flowers over there. That's not what we're looking at. And then there's sort of this like weird reversal where you expect um, the prophet to ask God the question. But instead, the spirit of the Lord actually asks the prophet, son of man, can these bones live? And my favorite moment, the moment that makes this chapter just stick in my mind, is actually what the prophet says in response. He says, Oh Lord, you know. And I do, I kind of always play it in my mind like the prophet knows that he's sort of being messed with a little bit. Like, come on, God. You know I don't know that. You know that you're the one that knows things. And it's just this sort of pure recognition that we don't know. We don't know if or how those bones are ever going to live. But instead of our knowledge of an ending, what we have is an intimacy with God. We have an open dialogue, the ability to cry out in deep dependence. There's no pretense of having to have sort of the right answer to know what's going to happen or even to be able to fix it. Instead, there's just this relational, conversational, bold hope. Oh, Lord, you know. Because I think we do know a God whose character is to take up that which is dead and dry and broken and to give it sinews and flesh and skin and breath. And that's, that's what we see in this image. It's a skeleton calling out, saying, Come on, guys. Arise, you dead. And it's in this, this sort of God, this relational life from death with us, God, on whom we are able to set our hopes. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that is 
a friend and a comforter to us. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your own character, for who you are. Thank you that we can, we can know you, that you've revealed these glimpses of yourself that are trustworthy. Come near to us just as we continue to worship and continue to be our friend and our father and our comforter. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.